Hello and welcome to Dialogos with me, William Milne, where we talk with some of the most interesting and insightful people in the world today. On this episode, we are joined by the renowned medieval historian, television presenter and journalist Dan Jones. Dan is an international best-selling author, selling over one million copies of his books, which include The Plantagenets, The Hollow Crown, Powers and Thrones, and most recently, the historical novel Essex Dogs. He, he has also written and presented a large number of television shows, including the widely popular Netflix series, Secrets of Great British Castles. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Dan. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for asking me. Um, so to begin with, you've devoted pretty much all of your, well, almost all of your historical career to um, the medieval period, uh, the Middle Ages. Yeah. What's the selling point of the Middle Ages as an area of um, historical study? Well, when I started, I, I wasn't, I didn't really think about it in selling, in terms of selling points. I, I just studied and decided to write about medieval history because that was what I studied most of when I was at university. Um, the, I suppose the reasons that I enjoyed studying it were that it's a period where the the sort of exotic and the familiar seem to me to collide. And by that, I mean, the world is not so um, totally alien that it's like you, you, you have no real common uh, mental touch points with the people that you're studying. So I, I would say like, if you go back into, say, the Bronze Age, you know, ancient Egypt, I often feel like you're dealing with aliens from another planet. If you come much further forward and, you know, 20th century history, 19th century history, it often feels, you know, you're, you're very familiar. The Middle Ages is, is where the, the exotic and the familiar overlap. And I think that there's also a satisfying balance between um, absence of material in the sense that you know, you're not, you don't have what you would with the 20th century or 19th century where you're completely overwhelmed with historical sources. Um, so there's a manageable amount of available material, but there's not, it's not so scarce, although this isn't true if you go to the earlier Middle Ages, that you're doing a jigsaw, a thousand piece jigsaw with only three of the pieces. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So it's, it's like a sort of a tipping point for me in history. And that's, I suppose, what attracts me to the period. Does it sort of, change does it become less um mystery sort of consumed as you progress through the middle oh, beforehand i think it's good that we sort of lay out the markers of the middle ages but after that mm. um i'm wondering if from the beginning of the middle ages to the end of the middle ages um uh through perhaps more writing etc does it become less sort of mystical um as you progress or is that not really the case I think that's absolutely right. So let's let's as you um, as you very sensibly suggest define what we mean by the Middle Ages. In my most recent non-fiction book, Powers and Thrones, I defined and I think this isn't that controversial uh, as beginning in 410 AD with the collapse of the Western Roman Empire and going through to about what did I say in Powers and Thrones? 1527, I think, was my arbitrarily chosen date uh, for the end of the Middle Ages. So you know, from the from the fifth to the late 15th, early 16th century is a pretty uncontroversial definition. And yes, absolutely. Uh, across that span of time, one sees an enormous number of changes within almost every realm of human activity. And certainly by the time you get to the late 15th century, the world does seem a bit more familiar than a thousand years previously to it. Yeah. Um, 
the term sort of medieval is often sort of quite pejorative, as in, oh, that's so medieval, that's so backward. Do you um, think that's a really bad or a really bad characterization of the period, or do you think there is uh, some truth to that? Quentin Tarantino did did a lot of uh, a lot of difficult work for histor- medieval historians with pulp fiction. He said he's going to get I'm going to get medieval on your ass. That's uh, that's really stuck it in uh, popular culture. Um, I I don't get too animated or worked up about it. Actually, I know a lot of medievalists do, and they think it's it's very annoying that the term medieval is used as a pejorative. I can definitely see why it is used because there is a caricature of the Middle Ages as being a time, or certain part of the Middle Ages, as being a time of sort of a violence and backwardsness. But that's by that's by no means unique to the Middle Ages. Um, could just as well say it about the 20th or 21st centuries, right? But it doesn't really irk me because the older I get and the more experienced and maybe the more cynically commercial I become. Um, it's it's very rare that there are terms which which are in common parlance. You know, it's hard to find subjects to write about that people have heard of without putting too fine <laughs> a point on it. Um, and one of my big tests when I sit down to think of, you know, or, or you know, when I'm, I'm sort of stress testing ideas for books is, has have normal people actually heard of this thing? So when I did my book about the Templars, the sell for that book, you know, to the publishers was, I'm going to do the Templars, and they were like, yes, great, fantastic, I get it. Or the Crusades, you know, these are words that are in the sort of the broader popular lingo. And medieval uh, people know what you're talking about when you say medieval, right? You might have to sort of give them a nudge to define the exactly what centuries we're talking about. But if I say medieval, you're probably thinking of castles and knights and uh, you know a degree of warfare, but some kind of uh, interesting art and architecture. You know, there's, there's a sort of vibe that the Middle Ages gives off, and I think that's good. And so even if people are using it in a sort of way that isn't exactly kind to the Middle Ages, at least they've heard of it. And I think that is a massive part of the battle with with doing history in the sort of popular quote-unquote space. Yeah. Um, so when talking about the Middle Ages, I think it's probably best, uh, probably good to frame it geographically um, because growing up, uh, sort of England, England and France, really, they're the two places that sort of associate any sort of medieval history. And maybe that's just me, but... How far geographically does the Middle Ages, does the definition of the Middle Ages stretch, um, in your opinion? That's a terrific question, and I think the we have to think about where the idea of the Middle Ages comes from. And let's take John Fox, Fox's Book of Martyrs, fifteen sixty three. Think um, Fox writes of the you know the primitive age which is sort of pre-Christianization of Rome. Uh, he writes of our, our, effectively our modern age, which is post-Reformation, you know, the, the, the very cool, hip, modern world of the 1560s. And then he says, in between, you've got the Middle Age, which is the sort of era of uh, Catholic Christendom, I suppose mm. you could call it. So the, the idea of the Middle Ages is sort of... Um, by definition, 
an ecclesiastical historical term. And so I, I, it's 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 about quote unquote the West, and it's it's specifically about Europe, um, Christian Europe, as stretching as far as let's say, um, well, the, the the Near East, Syria, Palestine, Egypt. Uh, so that's that's really where we can we can speak of the Middle Ages. Now you can do medieval history that's that's a kind of global history, and I think it would be very interesting to write a medieval history of the world with everything but Europe left in. But it would it would be applying the term to a place that it wasn't designed for, if that makes any sense. I I, I often think it would be great to do a book about medieval America. Um, I like purely from a commercial point of view. I think that would be a very selling idea. Uh, however, and I'm actually, I'm sure someone's probably done, but what you'd be doing would be just taking a fairly arbitrary slice of time and just looking at America, for example, or you could do Africa or whatever, in that period. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be a sort of organic periodization to, to anywhere except, uh, except Europe, I think. Yeah. Um, in terms of... Uh... So following on the theme of geography, in terms of trade, um, was it very localized or was it more sort of extensive um, throughout the Middle Ages? No, it's very extensive. I mean, tra trade networks are massively extensive through pretty much throughout the Middle Ages, although there is a falling away uh, in the earlier Middle Ages, particularly um, it's a breaking of, of trade networks that's attendant on the collapse of the Roman Empire. Valerie Hansen, have you read Valerie Hansen or seen Valerie Hansen's book uh, about the year 1000? No, no. No reason you should have. But I, I, I reviewed it a few years, two, three years ago. In it, Valerie Hansen writes about, tries to conceive the year uh, 1000 AD as a first brief glimmer of globalization. And she says it's possible in that time that an item, a coin, a bead, any artifacts could, in theory, have travelled around the world via trade networks. Uh, principally, that's because you have Norse explorers in uh, Lanzo Meadows, you know, in, in Northern America, uh, and you also have the Norse going in the other direction, say to Constantinople, and then you've got extremely, extremely strong trade networks, the Silk Roads going on from the Near East through to China. So, yeah, there are very extensive trade networks during the Middle Ages. Uh, geographically, um, very, very widespread. Uh, but of course, you know, we're talking about a thousand year span. So trade networks rise and fall and break and strengthen over that period, obviously. Um, but if, you know, if you want a flavor of the sort of trade world of the Middle Ages, you could do much worse than just look at Marco Polo's travels. I mean, even if mm. people have some doubts about the uh, the complete veracity of everything that's in Marco Polo's travels, it's, even if 20% of it is true, you see this thriving global trade economy, particularly uh, in the East. Yeah. Um, your book, Powers and Thrones, it's um, sort of on the title, it says it's a new history. Um, presumably there have been... Mm. There's been quite a lot of writing on the Middle Ages. I, I, th I think it might have been a bit neglected, but that probably has been. I mean, I'm assuming there's been a lot of writing on the Middle Ages. Um, what makes your um, work new? What, what's 
knew about it. Well, yeah, you're quite right. People have been writing about the Middle Ages since at least since Edward Gibbon, right? Mm. So what I tried to do when I wrote Powers and Thrones, sitting in this very seat during mostly during lockdowns, was conceive or well let's start with the idea that history is always a conversation between past and present and that quite naturally each generation writes new histories of old times because they're uh, there's always a reflection back and forth between the time of the writing and the time under study. Um, what I tried to do in Powers and Thrones was write a a history that that lifted themes I thought would be interesting to a 21st century audience out of the, the material. So I had written on, I'm looking in this direction because I've got a big cork board, hmm. like the right, Oh, yes. have, you know the layout for yeah. whatever book I'm working on next to me, and on that it had five things. Let's see if I can remember them. It had um, pandemics, which actually that was quite low down the list because I started writing it before COVID. Uh, global networks, climate change, mass migration, climate change, mass migration, global networks pandemics and something else look at that i can't remember what the other thing was but you see what i mean these are um these these were sort of 21st century uh adjacent themes that i thought uh, made for an interesting um set of priorities to bear in mind when looking at the middle ages and so uh that's what i suppose made the approach to this work new and also you know let's not beat around the bush publishers love putting a new history on it because then people will think it's sort of groovy and cool and new and um there is there is a sort of limited set of publishing buzzwords that it's a good idea to put in your subtitles um but you know i did i'm being sort of fairly flippant there but i did actually try to see that uh that claim through in the writing of the book um, presumably you were writing your book throughout, uh, the COVID pandemic. Um, mm. what, so did you see any similarities or ha- how many similarities with, um, past plagues, um, that you've mentioned in powers and thrones? Well, a plague is a, a or, or a pandemic. Um, I suppose w- what is it? well look if you if you let's take the black death the two big pandemics of the middle ages are the plague of justinian in the 6th century and the uh black death in the 14th century recurring thereafter um and in terms of what this act this disease actually is they're not similar at all to the novel coronavirus that caused the, the pandemic we've just lived through however what is a pandemic really the the experience of a pandemic is human reaction to widespread mm. disease, and there were there were lots of things that did that were at least superficially similar between one pandemic and another. And it's things like lockdowns, and it's things like um, sort of mass temporary mass kind of hysteria and and weirdness and madness, and people looking for. Um, crazy solutions in, in often comical and, and desperate ways. Um, 
but there are as many differences as there are similarities. I think in, in Powers and Thrones, I used um, an account by uh, Robert of Avesbury, I think it was, who's working for the Archbishop of Canterbury um, during the COVID pandemic, the COVID pandemic, mm. during the Black Death. And he writes about going out into the streets in London and seeing a parade of flagellants. Uh, you know, whipping themselves till their, their backs are running with blood and uh, and imploring God to spare them, you know, this great punishment. And uh, I remember writing it during COVID and just being very sort of tut-tutty about it, going, well, that, I mean, that's a super spreader event if ever I saw one, you know. <laughs> so um, there were things that were done during the Middle Ages the pandemic of the Middle Ages, which we would, would have frowned upon somewhat and not seen as, as a very good idea uh, today. But it was definitely an interesting experience. As I said, when mm. I wrote down my my list of themes for, for Powers and Thrones, I sort of hesitated about putting um, pandemics on the list. Yeah. Seems mad now. Uh, but we, uh, I, I knew it was going to be important in looking at the Middle Ages because, of course, the Black Death so, looms so large. In the, in the later Middle Ages. Um, but I was like, hmm, you know, uh, is this really going to ping a 21st century audience? Are they really going to think back to, you know, AIDS and SARS, uh, you know, the 2004 SARS? Hmm, I don't know, I don't know. And then, boom, COVID came along and solved all my problems <laughs> on that front. I presented a good, <laughs> a good many more on almost all other fronts. Yeah. Um, the Middle Ages, in terms of its impact on the world today throughout powers and thrones you reference um modern day numerous times what impacts what, what type of impact do you think it's had on the uh, uh modern day so has it been maybe psychological has it been actual sort of tangible impacts sort of what what sort of impact do you think it's had um or is that quite a lot is it too much speculation a bit of the time no, 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 not at all. I mean, you can see the legacy of the Middle Ages and, and almost anywhere that you want to look. It, you could see it architecturally if mm. you walk around any major or most major cities in the UK. You're likely to bump into a Gothic cathedral if you uh, you know you open your National Trust or English Heritage brochure. It's going to be full of uh, castles, and so you know we have these these big monumental the monumental architecture of particularly the later Middle Ages, is still um, is still with us, not the monasteries in, in England and Wales, of course, but, um, uh, you know, large parts of it. Um, you can go and look at things like the origins of the common law and the legal profession in, in England, and all of that dates from, well, the sort of origins of the common law are uh, earlier than the origins of the sort of, of the legal professions we now know it, but the... I'd written about the Plantagenets many, many years ago. Uh, and if you look at the sort of story of the lead up to Magna Carta, you're looking at quite a sort of formative age of English lawmaking. Um, 13th century, you start to see, as I said, you start to see the, the, the formal growth of a legal profession uh, in London, but also in places like Bologna, where the universities are set up. Of course, the universities are a legacy, the great universities, Paris, Oxford. Bologna, uh, Cambridge, these are all legacies of the Middle Ages, um, and so on and so on and so on and so on. You know, it could fill up thousands upon thousands of words demonstrating further examples, but I think you get the idea. But I think your your term um, about the psychological is, is just as important. There is this sort of 
it, it looms quite large in culture, you know, popular culture. There is there is a sort of medieval genre of filmmaking, of TV making. There's always, or certainly for the last 10, 15 years, and I'm not just talking about Game of Thrones, sort of alt Middle Ages, but there's there is a steady flow of uh, medieval or medieval adjacent kind of movies and TV shows coming out, whether it's The Last Kingdom, you know, the adaptations of Vernon Cornwell's novels, or I'm sure some of your listeners will have been to the movies recently and seen The Lost King, the story about Richard III's <laughs> excuse me, skeleton being discovered in Leicester. Um, so, yeah, the Middle Ages are sort of always always there or thereabouts in uh, the popular imagination, and, and that's, um, that's a good thing for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, so surely there's also negative... Um, sort of uh, hijackings of the yeah, Middle Ages. Um, you maybe that sort of aspect. Yeah, and and, and medievalists, particularly left-leaning medieval academics, get their knickers in an awful twist about uh, the hijacking, to use your excellent term of the Middle Ages, by, you know, white supremacists and, and other similar moronic people and groups. Um, equally by you know radical islamist terrorists the, the middle ages sort of catnip particularly the crusade i mean the crusades are, are the thing that we're really talking about here aren't mm. they um the idea that there is this sort of or, or the notion of there being a civilizational dual war battle between uh the realm of islam and and the christian and and jewish worlds uh, all of this can be given a, a strong medieval spin if you want it to if you want to do so um the the, the sort of notion of anglo-saxon as a, a, a badge to be worn by white supremacists well that that it that could fall under the, in the category of um medieval hijacking and i'm sure as uh, as you know and your listeners will know uh, there is a a movement I think still ongoing within some realms of medieval academia to strike the term Anglo-Saxon from from the books and syllabuses on the grounds that it's you know you're pandering to white supremacists. I myself think that's a bit silly, uh, but uh, yeah, you're right. You're right. The, the Middle Ages are there to be um, messed around with and hijacked if you're a if you're a sort of um, right wing nutter or a, a radical Islamist nutter. Yeah, hmm. it's true. Yeah. Um, it's true. I want to ask about so throughout your books, we meet like I mean, towering figures, sort of um, Attila the Hun, um, Justinian, etc. Do you think? Yeah. Do you think they're the ones who guide the whole course of history throughout um, your books uh, throughout the Middle Ages, or it's sort of the classic question, or do you think there are broader social forces at play? Sort of what sort of view do you take? How, how much importance do you put on the figures and their personalities and, the, and their sort of like... The great man slash great person. Yeah. yeah. I, I give you a classic historian's answer, I suppose, which is it's a bit of both, isn't it? Um, I think uh, over the course of... I'm in my early 40s and over the course of my life and, and my career, which has occupied the second half of my life, uh, I've seen trends come and go and... Biography uh, as as a sort of way of reading history has come in and out of fashion. Um, Self-evidently, the, the, the course of history is an interplay between um, 
extraordinary individuals and forces much bigger than any one person. Um, but I think, you know, you particularly in the last few years, as we've seen um, politics and culture and technology shaped, changed, driven by extraordinary individuals, people like President Donald J. Trump mm. or uh, Elon Musk or, um, you know, go on and on and on. Uh, one does have to remember that human beings don't operate like an ant colony, or certainly as we perceive an ant colony, in which it's just, you know, bazillions of basically identical people all being shaped by the sort of the, the forces around them. It's it's interplay between individuals and 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 much bigger factors. And so or rather, but in the in my books and in my writing, I use uh, I use biography quite a lot because I'm just turning my email off. I'm sorry. Um, it's I, I found bi biography to be a very important uh, ingredient to communicating history because we're human beings and we um, we understand story chiefly through people. Um. And so I would find it extremely hard to write history without strong characters within my writing. And I think that that's what makes books readable. And that's the kind of books I'm drawn to. I don't make any pretense or any claim that this is the correct, objectively correct or only way to do history. Uh, it's the way I do it. It's the way I like it. Um, and there are you know others who would do it differently and i think you know it's um, like popeye says william i am what i am mm -hmm. and um I, I i find biography a very effective way of communicating history it's obviously not the only way yeah yeah um i wanted to maybe give it a lighter touch and go yeah. to um sort of misconceptions you find annoying about the middle ages so is there anything that okay. is there anything that everyone says that just really isn't like isn't right and it's just like I tell you, as, I tell as you as what, what winds me up. It's, it's not. I, yeah. I tell you very specifically the thing that winds me up. Yeah. And you hear this a lot. If you go to a castle, you just hang around a spiral staircase for a bit. You won't have to hang around long. Yeah. You'll hear some bright spark saying well you know the reason the spiral staircase is go up what would that be uh clockwise and someone the person they're with will go no why does spiral staircase go up clockwise well because in the middle ages they designed like that so if the castle got invaded you'd have to fight with your sword left-handed <laughs> as you go up the stairs so it's an advantage to the defender yeah. fighting with their sword right-handed because most people are right-handed going down the stairs i mean just think about it. <laughs> How stupid that sounds. If there are people in the castle with swords, yeah. <laughs> you've lost. The yeah. siege is over. Yeah. You've already lost. You're not not fighting on the fucking staircases. <laughs> uh, so that um, that baits me slightly. But uh, <laughs> I think I'm like I'm pretty chill these days and um i'm kind of past getting wound up by by stuff too much and i to sort of uh, circle back a little bit to where we began this conversation i'm just always sort of 
teary overwhelmed with with gladness when anyone's heard of the thing that I'm writing about. So uh, misconceptions can only exist when there is uh, a, a conception. Um, so and correcting um, popular misconceptions is fun. And uh, so I don't let it wind me up too much. But the spiral staircase thing that does that does really bait me. Yeah. Really baits me. Um, you recently released your first historical novel, Essex Dogs, uh, set during the Hundred Years' War. Um, having read some other of your book, some uh, your other work, uh, that seems very narrative-y. Uh, narr- that's a bad word, but there's a lot of narrative to it, a lot of story to it. Did that mean that the jump um, from writing nonfiction history um, to writing historical fiction? Uh, was difficult or do you think it was perhaps easier than uh, other historians um well i don't know about other historians but what i would say is that um i could understand why for a long time people asked me to write fiction because as you've noted my non-fiction is kind of narrative biographical colorful um but I think the two, I found the experience of writing fiction very, very different from the experience of writing nonfiction. Um, the nonfiction I write is incredibly heavy on the structure. It's a structure job. Each of my books is 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 a, a, a deeply structured uh, sort of architectural thing. And so I spend a long time before I start writing and during the writing, working out like complex structures for the, for the nonfiction. That's what actually makes it work. Um, and a lot of those structures are borrowed from all over the place. Some of them are, are kind of screen structures for the, that's the, that's what the superstructure is. And, and then there's lots of other different things going on. Um, when I try to apply that to uh, writing fiction, I just like hit a wall and it, it didn't work. Mm-hmm. It was really weird. And I've been sort of warned about it. George R. R. Martin told me that, yeah. you know, he was, he talks about architects and gardeners mm. as the two types of writer. And he's very pro gardener. You know, you plant a seed and just see what grows. And I, that, I remember him saying that to me and it filled me with uh, horror, really, the thought of working like that. But I've discovered that that is how <laughs> I, I write fiction too. Yeah. Um, so, so my whole working process was radically different. The amount of work I was doing, like the head state I have to be in to work, um, the times of day that I was working, all of that was was, was very, very different writing fiction. Um, uh, so actually for me, like experientially, yeah, they had almost nothing in common. Mm. Um, my history is much the nonfiction writing I do. And, and as I'm, st- I'm sort of doing bits of nonfiction at the moment, doing, you know, writing podcasts and stuff like that, mm. uh, which is sort of narrative, uh, dramatic podcast. That's that. That's sort of normal nonfiction writing, but fiction is a yeah. It's a, it's a wildly different thing. Uh, as for the products themselves, mm. I guess they probably both have a sort of stamp or an imprimatur on them. That's like my vibe. Uh, but I found the fiction much closer to my actual sort of quote unquote uh, normal personality <laughs> than. Um, than uh, the non-fiction. You know, non-fiction is a sort of, oh, you want the dog, don't you? And I'm sorry, there you go. Um, sorry, I'm just getting 
for listeners uh, who don't know what's going on, mm-hmm. I've had a dog sitting on my lap for the last half an hour, and now he has to go for a walk. <laughs> so he's gone. Um, so, yeah, I, like I've had a lot of my friends and family who wouldn't really read my nonfiction have read the fiction and enjoyed yeah. it and been, you know, there's, there's, I try and, and put humor in my nonfiction books, you know, for example but not of the same sort of humour that's gone into the fiction writing. So it's, it's, it's touching. I, I found them very different is the, is the short answer. Um, and I'll be interested to see whether readers have the same reaction. I don't know. Yeah. Well, just as we, uh, last question, uh, what, prom- what, what prompted you to write this specific, um, historical novel, um, on the, uh, 100, hundred years war? Well, you know, I had, it's a sort of a a bit of a messy uh, origin story, but back in 2017, I was working on a big, big budget history drama that was shooting out in Prague. And so I flew back and forth London to Prague quite a lot. Um, And I was on the flight on the way back from Prague and sort of dozing, slightly hungover and had (laughs) this kind of just idea about some freebooter mercenary types in about the 14th century on a beach. And that, that, I didn't really know what to do with it or who they were. I wasn't in the business of writing fiction, but I woke up from my, my semi slumber, wrote some notes on my laptop. I was listening to a song called Essex dogs by blur. So I just called the file Essex dogs and then just put it away for like a couple of years, really. Hmm. Um, I, I, I then found something for the, these Essex dogs as they became to do on New Year's Day 2019, when I was taking a walk with some friends on Omaha Beach in Normandy. I had a house in, in Normandy for New Year, and there we were having a bracing New Year's Day walk. And we were talking about, obviously, we were talking about D-Day because we were on Omaha Beach. But I was like, you know, it's it's not only 6th of June 1944 when there was a big amphibious landing here on the beaches of the Cotentin Peninsula. In 1346, Edward III landed 15,000 men, uh, just up the coast at Savala Oog, which is near Utah Beach. And then those so those two things, the idea of this little band of freebooter mercenaries and the idea of a kind of medieval D-Day, they kind of plugged together in my yeah. mind. And then about six months later, I mentioned earlier, I was working with George R. R. Martin. He, I was interviewing him in London and we had dinner afterwards. Yeah, he, he, he Meeting him sort of nudged me over the edge mm. from, I don't think I want to do fiction to... I think this dude is having an amazing amount of fun. He's really, really like a big consumer of uh, connoisseur of lover of history. Uh, and yet he's, he turns it into something that's not history. And he just seemed to be just having a blast doing it. And um, I was like, I, you know, I just felt ready to give it a go. I'd also, you know, I've written 10 nonfiction books. I, I was, yeah coming towards the end of writing actually no at that time I was, I was at the beginning but you know i was writing powers and thrones which was the whole history of the middle ages which felt like a kind of mm. a landmark book and also a piece of sort of punctuation i was coming up to my 40th birthday all of these things just felt like now is the time to give it a go and i had a story that's uh that was you know essex dogs the first of a trilogy that's like a, a big juicy chunk of story and i came up with some characters who, who seem to have have like engaged people yeah so but i'm learning you know I, I part of my like personal journey when you get a bit older i'm obviously a lot older than you are but i'm, I'm not yet quite ancient but 
uh, the business of being a writer is quite solitary, right? You don't, yeah. there's no pre-built pathway. You don't start as like a trainee and end up uh, as the CEO and then they give you like a carriage clock and you retire. You're just sort of doing stuff. And the older I've become anyway, and I don't know if this will resonate with other writers listening or, or people who work for themselves and nobody else, that you have to try and give your like career some shape some direction yeah. some meaning and think about personal development you don't have to but I, I want to and think about how to become a better writer or uh, or how to grow as as a writer as a sort of creative person you start thinking about different means to explore certain ideas and certain periods and um, it just felt it felt like a challenge not that non-fiction wasn't a challenge and I haven't given up writing non-fiction but I certainly felt like now is the time to sort of test myself in, in something different for a little bit. And I'm enjoying it. I'm, and I'm enjoying it because I find it hard and I'm enjoying it because it's a challenge. And I'm enjoying it because I'm learning and learning is the most important thing. You know, learning and developing um, doesn't have to stop like in your 20s or whatever. No. But it's it's easy to think, you know, it would be easy, I think, to have gotten to my 40s and just been like, oh, well, I know what I'm doing now. I'll just do another 40 years of this and I'll die. <laughs> you know, that was not for me. Like, I, yeah. I want to change and grow and not get bored and stale. That's <laughs> what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Well, thank you so much uh, for coming on the podcast um, today. Um, before we go, um, just want to reference your, your own podcast, um, This Is History which I know has been very oh, popular. I, I've started listening to it. Really like, like you're in a film. I think that's what anyone would say Good. when you listen to it. Um, so highly recommend to the audience. And I'll put it, I'll put these things in the description. Um, but thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, it's been a real privilege and I was very humbled that you came on. So thank you. No, man, this is what podcasters do. Have you yeah. never listened to like Ro Rogan interviewing Jocko yeah. Willink or whatever? They just go on each other's podcasts. Yeah. This is the this, this is, is the this is the new media landscape, man. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a pleasure. Good luck. Good luck with it. It's, Thank it's you. cool, Thanks. and uh, I wish you I wish you very very well. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dialogos. If you enjoyed it, feel free to leave a rating, and don't forget to follow the podcast for more interviews with more fascinating individuals.